There we go. We're going to have church. We done had church this morning already, and we just started. So that's, I'm excited. This is a good morning. Uh, I couldn't have planned this better had I planned it. And as those of you that are here often, uh, when these things come together, I'm always like, huh, wow. Um, and you would think that I would know because communion is always the first Sunday, and I never think about that somehow until we're like the week of, and I'm like, oh, we have communion this week. Oh, that fits in really well. And so I, I do believe that God moves. I, I believe that God works and that uh, our, our faults and failures, our successes and, and our strengths, none of those things get in God's way. God is, God is so amazing that he can move in this moment and he can reveal to us that we need to do something different in the service. But you know what? God is also so great that God, months ago when Nathan and I, Pastor Nathan and I were sitting at Panera Bread talking about what we were going to do for the next six months, God could work in that moment and say, you know what? On that Sunday, you are going to do all the things and all the things are going to point to everything that I've done. And to me, that's amazing. That God has been preparing, th just think about that, that the God of the universe cares enough to prepare this moment for this church on this day. That God has something he wants to say to us, something that God wants to do in and through us and with and for us if we'll come along with him. So we're going to go to God this morning once again, and we're going to ask him to speak to us in this time as we turn our attention now to his word, as we can hear what's been illustrated so clearly to us so far. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. That, your grace that is so great that it covers all of our sins. Lord, that is in fact the story of the Bible. That is the story of the gospel. That is the glory of Christmas and Easter together, that God became flesh and dwelt among us and that he suffered a cruel, terrible death, shedding his blood as the spotless lamb of God, that he might take away the sins of the world, God, our sins. That he might work in and through us to do and to bring about his good will according to his pleasure. God, I pray that you would speak to us in these moments. That you would move in our hearts and minds, that you would remove any barriers, anything that is distracting us. And God, that you would speak clearly to us where we find ourselves today, that we might follow you where you're leading us for tomorrow. Be with us in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I, I actually thought about saying this at the beginning of the service because we're down here doing baptism, which represents the, the washing away of our sins. And, um, you know, I had to give you a little heads up of what was coming in the, in the service that we're doing communion and we're talking about the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And I almost said it and then I choked it back. I don't know why because it was perfectly aligned. I almost said, spoiler alert. Y'all know what a spoiler alert is, don't you? Spoiler, a spoiler alert is when someone is about to tell you about the, the climactic moment or about a secret moment or about a special moment in a show or, or in a movie or in, you know, what, whatever it is. And people get really mad about these things. They, they get really upset. JJ, I remember him being extremely upset when people were talking about some of the, the, the secrets and spoilers that were, were coming up in the new Spider-Man I remember Michaela being irate about the spoilers that were shared about uh, the, the last Avengers movie. Uh, which is funny because Michaela really is, she aligns with me. I, I am not someone that minds spoilers. I am one of those people that will go look up what happens in the movie before I go see the movie so I can know what to expect and when to expect it when I get to the movie. I realize that I have a sickness. I realize that that's a, an aspect of my type A personality that you may not like and add it to the list folks but th this is how God made me and I don't mind spoilers I'm one of those that likes to know what to expect I want to know when I'm going to be sad and when I get to be happy again and and I'm okay with that thanks buddy I appreciate that <laughs> but I don't mind spoilers and you know I was thinking this week about the the Bible right you think about the Bible and you think about the the story of of Jesus and the story of Jesus is, is the climactic moment in the story of God's presence and power on the earth, right? 
The, the story, everything leads and pushes to this moment in history. And, and Paul talks it at just the right time that Christ came to die for the ungodly. That's fine. Like, like Paul spoiling the secret after the fact is no big deal. But if you think about the reality of the Gospels, and you think about the reality of what happens in Scripture, no one should have been surprised at what happened to Jesus once he was born and lived his life. The, the, the truth is this. The death of Jesus as the sacrifice for the sin of the world is the absolute worst kept secret in the Bible. The death of Jesus as the sacrifice for the sins of the world is the worst kept secret in the Bible. It is all over the Bible. We, we might even say that the scriptures themselves drip with the blood of the Savior. It's everywhere. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was talking about it, and you can, it's one of those themes, one of those threads that you can pull and you can look at, and you will never run out of thread because it is so pervasive in the pages of Scripture. Jesus is what it was all coming up to, and Jesus is what it all moves out of. All of the meaning of Scripture comes together. We understand Scripture best through the filter of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think even in the Gospels themselves, so let's take, the, let's take the rest of the Bible and set it to the side. I'm not saying it's unimportant. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we're just going to focus on the Gospels themselves for a moment, shall we? That if you think of just the Gospels being the story of the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, there were spoilers, if you will, moments where they pointed ahead to what was going to happen, and they gave clear indications that the death of Jesus was coming from the beginning to the end of the story of Jesus' life. And I want to look at that today. And, and, and I, I, I normally, this is, this is hard for me. This is different than what I normally do in a service. And you're going to see a few points up there. But I want you to come away with one point this morning that is incredibly obvious and, and uh, apparent and inherent throughout the Gospels. And that is this, that Jesus is the Lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world. That is the point of the sermon this morning, and everything is going to point to how the Gospels bring that out early and often throughout. So we're going to look through a few passages. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me first to Luke chapter 2. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 25. This is actually where, as, as Pastor Nathan and I were talking about this series, where I started it. Because it was actually near Christmas time, and, and Christmas is, as we all know, my favorite season of the year. And, and it points, I believe, to what we see here now as we come into Easter. So we're going to look at the story of Simeon right just shortly after the birth of Jesus. Luke 2, 25 through 35. And it says this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. And he was, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him into his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light of revelation for the Gentiles. And the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul as well. Well, that deteriorated real quickly, didn't it? Not like everything is great up until that point. It's an amazing moment that you read, and, and it feels funny to us. Actually, it's one of those moments that we don't talk about a lot at Christmas. We overlook because we want to focus on the shepherds and the angels and the virgin and, and Joseph the father and his righteousness and even John the Baptist. We, we don't often talk about Simeon and the declaration, but here we are, this random guy sitting at the temple, right? 
Uh, I get that the Holy Spirit led him to that temple. But can you imagine coming out of your hospital room with your baby and, or, or even coming to the church? It's your first Sunday. You come with your twins, right, to First Baptist Church, visiting with your mother. And some random dude who you've never met, that everybody knows he's a good guy, comes up to you and says, Hey, these girls are going to break the world. And they're going to they're gonna cause you so much pain. Like, someone inevitably is going to be like, hey, don't worry about this, Jeremy. He's just a little crazy, right? I can't believe you let him touch your kids. Well, he took them. Like, what was I supposed to do? I mean, think about this. This is what happened. Jesus, the, Mary and Joseph walk in with little baby Jesus into the temple to do their duty. And some random guy, I don't care how holy he is, comes up and says, hey, I need your kid. And they're like, okay. And he takes Jesus and starts talking all this stuff about him. He, he starts laying things out. Now, clearly, everybody understands that, that he's, it says that he's devout and he's righteous. He was a man that was devoted to the law of God. He was dedicated to following God. It tells us that the Holy Spirit was upon him at the moment. He was this man who lived according to God's word and trusted and watched for God's promises to come about. And it tells us that specifically in the text. It tells us that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, for you and I, it's easy for us to write that off as being really nothing and just talking, just taking that to the logical end of they're waiting for Jesus to come and take away sins and bring peace. All right? We, we, we write that off and we move on. But these people that were waiting for the consolation of Israel were waiting for something very specific. These were people that, that actually gathered together, and it was a sect of people that were looking for something specific from God. If you look at the text, you'll notice that it doesn't tell us that he's a priest. It, it doesn't tell us, one of the things that we often see in the temple is if there is a political affiliation, they will give us. They will tell us that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. They will tell us that he was, the person was a Sadducee or a Pharisee. We see none of that. This is just a really, really righteous, good man who is dedicated to the word of God, who has spent his life watching for God to do what God said God would do. And this consolation of Israel is a very specific thing. The consolation of Israel is a reference to a prophecy or the prophecy in the book of Isaiah concerning the coming of the Messiah. Those waiting for the consolation were those holding to the hope that God would bring an end to the suffering and alienation of his people. That's important. Because though he has no political affiliation, what he is waiting for was thought to be something incredibly political. What they thought they were waiting for was the coming of this king that would destroy the ruling powers of the world and restore Israel to their rightful place as the kings of the world. Isaiah actually says this in Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 11. It says, comfort, comfort, O my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid. For, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now that's what they like to focus on, right? That, that Israel was going to be comforted. That's what the consolation is. That, that God was going to comfort Israel. That Israel had finally done their time. They had, already, they had paid the penalty for their sins. And that God was going to alleviate now their suffering because they had gone through what was necessary. But the text goes on. It says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall be level. The rugged places plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry out? All people are like grass, and, and all of their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. 
See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He carries the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. We see this, this all coming together with these good news. And, and, and a spoiler alert, it actually points forward to where we're going to go next, to John the Baptist. And tells us about this declaration of what's going to happen at the coming of, of God's Savior. And here we see the first man that sees Jesus in the temple recognizes by the Spirit of God what is happening. That this prophecy is now being fulfilled in their sight. We know that Messiah, we, we, we think about Luke again, Simeon says that he's waiting and he's seeing the Messiah. And Messiah, we know, means anointed one. And in this text, as we think about prophecy that it refers back to, it refers to a, a specifically a king. And for these people that waited for the consolation of Israel, and for Israelites of the day, this king was meant to be in the line of David. Now we understand that, in the lineage of David. But for them it meant something more. For them it was not just an, a Hebrew king that, that was part of David's family, but for him, it for them, it was the king that was going to restore their prosperity and their prominence. This was a sword-swinging king. This was a king that was coming in to take names and kick hind end. This was an apocalyptic king that was going to destroy anyone who had anything bad to say against Israel. And we know from the text and we can see it even leading into Palm Sunday that that's exactly what the people thought they were getting with Jesus. If we were to stop with just the, the first half of the prophecy that, that Simeon gives to Mary and Joseph, we would see that, right? If we look in Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 32, this is like amazingly good news. This is one of those things when people start like saying this thing about your kid, you're like, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you got to think for Mary and Joseph, prophecy, like maybe this is why they were okay with this random dude taking their kid. Because it's not, there's nothing new for them, right? They don't have angels and shepherds and all kinds of kings and weird things that are going on in their life. And so they're like, it's just another, it's another day on the farm, right? <laughs> it's just how it goes for Mary and Joseph at this time. And you might think to yourself, at least I thought to myself, if I'm Mary and Joseph, I'm thinking, finally, some justice. Right? you got to think that, that that time leading up to Jesus being born was not easy for them. They've carried a heavy load with this young girl and this man. They've had to wait. They've had to deal with all these things. And they hear this prophecy about what God is doing and that Jesus is the one that's going to be, be bringing it about. And they're like, finally, our payback is coming. Our comeuppance is here. We're going to go from sitting in the, the guest room of this house to a palace. We win. This was not just good news. This was not just cause for celebration and joy. It was the good news. The best thing. The ultimate cause for joy and celebration. That here we have in the arms of Simeon, Jesus. The Messiah that the people had been waiting for. The Messiah the world needed. But here's the thing that we're going to see over and over as we look at the prophecies about Jesus. Is that he was the Messiah they'd waited for. He was the Messiah the world needed. But not necessarily the Messiah God's people wanted. Verse 29 through 30. We see the, the good news again, right? Simeon sees Jesus and understands that he's the Messiah. This is the gospel, right? He sees Jesus and he understands this is the Messiah. Simeon then receives Jesus. Right? Literally takes him into his arms. And then Simeon shares the truth about Jesus. He declares the gospel. This is, th is this not how salvation works for us? That, that we receive Jesus. We believe in our heart. And who Jesus is. And that we then declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. The, the, this has always been the way that so we see Simeon laying out the truth of the gospel. But Simeon has some things within his good news that don't fit into the good thoughts of good Hebrew people for the first century. First, Simeon breaks the news to them that, that according to the prophecy of Isaiah, that the people of Israel wouldn't be the only ones to benefit from God's consolation. That God wasn't just consoling and bringing about good things for Israel, but that he was bringing out consolation for the entire world, for everybody. 
for all nations. That this salvation was prepared in the sight, it says in verse 31, of all nations. Now, it would be easy if we wanted to at this point, we could bend this text and say, well, of course, God is preparing the Messiah and doing this in the sight of all nations. Because doesn't it say in the Psalms that he prepares a table for me in the place of my enemies? Oh, we can still bend this into our expectation of the sword singing, swinging Jesus. That he's, he, of course he's preparing this in front of all, because they've got to see, we've got to rub their face in it. What good is it to win if we can't tell everyone else that they're losers? So we could, we could bend it to that, right? It, it, we can add insult to injury, and we'd read those things as a first century Jew, Hebrew, and we'd be like, yeah, we're not only going to win, but we're going to tell everyone else that we're winners and they're losers. But Simeon doesn't stop there. In verse 32, he takes that off the table. While the Messiah would be the glory of Israel, he would also serve as a light of revelation, a light of invitation to the Gentiles. Which consequently, if you wondered, is literally everybody else. That it's not just the people of Israel that would be consoled. It was everybody gets the benefit of the truth of the gospel through the coming of Jesus. Now, even with Mary and Joseph, though, let's go back to them. At this point, they still are undoubtedly pumped. They carried the burden of, and the scandal of Jesus' birth, and now they learn that Jesus is not just going to be the king of Israel, but the king of the world. This is good news. This is where you want Simeon to stop, but he doesn't. He goes on. In verse 34 through 35, we see the big twist. That Jesus would upset the system of the world. Not just of the world, but the system of God's people. That he would literally, according to Simeon, turn it upside down. That he would lift up those who were low and bring down those who were mighty. We know as we consider what happened to Israel as a result of Christ's coming and even what happened to Rome subsequently, that that is exactly what Christ does. We know that from, he, from Isaiah, right? This shouldn't have been a surprise. God had already said that that's what he's going to do. He's going to bring down the mountain, bring up the valley, and he's going to put us all on an equal plane. You've heard the statement that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's truth to that. Jesus would upset the system. Jesus would be spoken against. Not exactly what you'd expect for the king of the world. That he would be a sign that would be spoken against. That he would be, the, the, the indication and implication there is that, that Christ, this Jesus that he's holding in his arms, would be mistreated. How do you give this kind of a prophecy while holding a baby in your arms? Hey, sorry kid, but you got a tough road to roll here. And, and God's going to do some good things bringing down and lifting up. But, like, people aren't going to like you. People aren't going to like your baby, Mary. They're going to have issues with him. Is this not the point where you say, give me my baby back? But she doesn't, and he goes on. And Simeon tells Mary that Jesus would bring unspeakable pain to Mary's own heart. That a sword would pierce her heart as well. And we could say that about, like people say that to you about your own kids, right? That your kid is going to, at some point in time, do something stupid that's going to break your heart. They're going to go off the rails. But this is not our kids. This is Jesus. While some of us may think that our children are precious cherubs and perfect angels of God, they're not. But Jesus was. Jesus was the perfect son of God. There was nothing that Jesus was going to do that was going to upset the apple cart in and through his behavior that was going to be an issue for Mary. We know that what he is talking about is specifically looking forward to the cross. Notice that he makes the prophecy for Mary, but not for Joseph. Simeon may not lay it all out there, but he is giving a pretty big spoiler that Mary, there's going to be major pain that's going to come to you as a result of the life and death of your son. He's going to do amazing things. Not everybody's going to love it. But it's necessary, and it is the consolation of Israel, and it's going to be good for the whole world, but it's going to hurt you. Even in the cradle, Jesus lived in the shadow of the cross. And we know from the words of Simeon that Jesus would ultimately bring salvation, not through conquest as people expected, but through a cross. 
not through force, but through sacrifice. Well, let's move on. Open your Bible, turn on your Bibles now with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 29. John chapter 1, 29 through 32, and it says this. The next day, John, this being John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me that has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on Jesus. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent him to, ba to be baptized with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who I will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I have testified that this is God's chosen one. So we have John the Baptist now. Now here's the thing that we've got to remember and understand about J John the Baptist. When we think of John, the, when people thought of the Savior, when people thought of the Messiah and the line and in the example of David, they thought of the John the Baptist type of guy, which I totally get. John the Baptist was exactly what they pictured. John the Baptist is my biblical spiritual animal. He is my guy. Good old JTB, right? I love him. He walks around in clothes that no one expects him to, to wear and, and does his own thing, has his own style. And he says what he's got to say, whether you're, you're going to like it or not. And sometimes it comes across a little brash and a little edgy. And I'm like, this is my guy. If I were to pick a Messiah, John the Baptist is my kind of guy as well. Makes sense. The fact is that he said incredibly insolent things to people that needed to hear it in power, and they accepted it from him. Everybody loved John the Baptist. He was a powerful presence in his time. He called out the establishment. He bites off a little more than he wants to chew at times. John the Baptist was what everyone expected. And we see, if we look back in verses 19 through 28, the verses preceding what we've just read, we understand that they did in fact think that John the Baptist was the coming Messiah. They asked him, that, are, are you the Messiah? It says he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So then they double down, verse 21, it tells us they asked him, uh, then, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, which is actually them asking again, well, are you just a different form of the Messiah than what we've expected? He says, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no, I'm not. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight for the way of the Lord. We just read that in Isaiah 40, right? The one coming before the consolation of Israel. The one coming before the promised Messiah that's coming to, to bring peace and, and, and bring a settling to the people of Israel. That are end the alienation and their suffering, right? And here we see John the next day. And how, how does John, as he's looking out, he sees his cousin, Jesus, coming towards him. And he makes the revelation. Remember, waiting for the Savior. And they hoped it was John the Baptist because he came carrying a stick. And he looks out and he sees Jesus. And what is his declaration about this Messiah that's coming? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, this seems a bit strange as a description for a king, doesn't it? Lambs aren't exactly the imagery that we want. There's actually a new song out that I love by Elevation Worship, and it's called Lion. And it talks about how uh, Christ is not only the Lamb of God, but also the Lion of Judah. And a lion has a roar. And we talked about maybe doing that song in the next couple of weeks. And I was like, we can't do it because it actually works against what we're going to say about Jesus. And it's true that Jesus does roar like a lamb, lion, but the fact is that he is ultimately and always the Lamb of God first and foremost. And John looks out and he declares that here's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Well, what did John mean as he calls Jesus the Lamb of God? There are three predominant options for our consideration this morning. First is, 
the lamb of the apocalypse. The lamb of the apocalypse. Apocalyptic literature is a genre in the Bible. It works in images and codes. And there are several reasons that we don't have time to get into right now. We can talk about that at another time. But it works in these codes and, and speaks with military language. And, and it kind of uh, speaks with, there's a lot of death and destruction, but, but it's, it's veiled. It's all very veiled. And we see examples of that clearly in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament and Revelation in the New Testament. And in these, in these apocalyptic books, the, the lamb is represented as a, a warrior. A warrior who battles and triumphs over forces of evil. He, he's presented as a mighty warrior king who takes the throne by force. It, it paints truly an incredibly paradoxical picture if you think about it. A lamb, right? We all know what a bam, lamb is, right? Bah! You know, I like seeing them on TikTok where they come running up and, and they add the voices to them. And they're cute little things that go running around. And, and not exactly what you think of as a ferocious guard dog type of a thing. Not exactly what you think about when you think of someone you want to follow, you, you follow into battle. But here we have this lamb that is the lamb of God. That's one picture. The, the lamb of the apocalypse. The second is the lamb as the suffering servant. And this is the picture we get throughout the book of Isaiah. And some scholars note that the Aramaic and Greek words for servant and lamb are closely related and often interchangeable. And this fits with what Isaiah did say about the Messiah. Isaiah clearly and, and over and over again paints this picture of this suffering servant, this Messiah who would bring about salvation through sacrifice, through, through harm that, that would come upon himself that he would take away upon himself the penalty for the sin of the world through the shedding of his blood. This lamb brings about salvation through sacrificial service. Again, seems to be contradictory to the expectation of the day. Finally, we have the paschal lamb. This would be the lamb that was sacrificed at Passover. It was the blood of this spotless lamb, and it pointed back to Exodus, where the lamb was sacrificed. And the, the blood of that lamb would cover the, the, the doorposts and the headposts of, of the doorway of a house of the people of Israel. And that blood would cover them so that when God's destroyer, when the angel of death came through, that they would be covered by the blood of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, and that, that God's wrath would then pass over them. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, makes a direct connection, calling Christ the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for us. All three images have their place in Scripture. All three images are clearly given to us. But I think that we make a mistake, and I think the people in the first century made a mistake. We want to default to the one that is best for us. The one that provides us a defense. The one that sits, fits in with, with, with our political and, and philosophical understanding of how the world works. We want the sword-swinging lamb. We want the lamb that's going to bring justice according to our understanding of justice. Particularly justice to those that are out there. And I think that there's a sense where Christ, not, I don't think, I know, there is a sense where Christ will be, be the lamb that sits on the throne and judges the world for their sins. That will come. But I want to argue or I want to submit to you that perhaps that should not be the first image that we go to. That in fact, rather than starting with the, the apocalyptic lamb, maybe we should end with the apocalyptic lamb. And our understanding of Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, should start with the Passover lamb that was sacrificed, whose blood was spilt for the forgiveness of sins, to cover sins, to bring about salvation. That then works into, and it is explained by, the, the suffering servant, and then informs our understanding of how the apocalyptic lamb is going to work. Now I want to I be clear about this. I do not know how Jesus is going to function when he comes back. And you can tell me that you do, but the truth is that you don't. And why do I say that? Because everybody was wrong about Jesus in the first century. You realize that all of the religious leaders, all of the educated ones who were so sure about what the Messiah was going to be, are the very ones that killed him because he didn't meet their expectations. 
Why do I say that to you this morning? I think we need to hold fairly loosely to our understanding of Jesus as destroyer of the world. Because it does not fit in with the understanding of the rest of Scripture where Jesus is the Savior of the world first. And John the Baptist looks out, and, and I think in this case we clearly know that John the Baptist is talking about Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. Here is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That last line brings us back and disambiguates and makes it so we have no other option. That John, by the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit, not only knew that he was the one to come to go before the Messiah, but he looked at Jesus and knew that he would serve as the sacrificial lamb that would take away the sin of the world. John's declaration is rooted in the sacrifice that covered sin. That Jesus is the lamb who would serve as the ultimate sacrifice. That he would do so through the patience of a suffering servant. And Jesus would defeat the sin and death and the forces of evil quite counterintuitively through the shedding of his own blood. And that he is now seated on the throne through his obedience to the will of the Father. What John the Baptist saw and heard from God inspired his declaration. That Jesus was, and we see that in verses 32 and, and to 34, that, that Jesus was the pre-incarnate, eternally existing Son of God, confirmed by the descending of the Spirit of God and the Word of the Father, and that He was the one to come. But again, Jesus would not be the sword-swinging Savior the people wanted, but the sacrificial lamb they needed. That the mighty king in the line of David would bring about the consolation and the salvation of Israel through the shedding of his blood, through his death. Now let's look at the words of Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. <clears throat> Matthew 16, 21 through 23, and it says this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside said, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now flip over to meet with me to Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 23. says, when they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. And his disciples were filled with grief. Turn over one more page, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. It says, now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus does not just give his, the, the prophecy of his death once, but he gives him his, his prophecy of his death three times. Three times. Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. Now, one of the things that I like to say here at First Baptist Church pretty often is this. Repetition means remember. Repetition means remember. Now, if repetition means remember, then we should really take note of the words of Jesus here. Jesus announces his sacrificial death three times. But we can go a step further with this. Not only does Jesus repeat the prophecy of a sacrificial death three times, it's listed in three of the Gospels. It's three on three. You think that means something to us? Think that maybe we should take note of this? I do. And here's the, the, the even bigger, broader truth, is these are not the first or only instances of Jesus calling his own shot. Jesus consistently preached about his sacrificial death in stories and illustrations throughout his life, 
in all of the Gospels. Jesus knew that his life's work would be made complete through his death on a Roman cross. Jesus knew that when they made their annual trek to Jerusalem towards the end of his life, that it would result in him being arrested, assaulted, and executed. Matthew 20, verse 28, the same same message where Jesus is talking about his, his coming death, Jesus says this, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand this today, and we need to keep this in the forefront of our minds and on the tip of our tongues, that Jesus came, first and foremost, to serve as the sacrifice for our sins. This is why Christ came. This is why the cross of Jesus is the central imagery of the church of Jesus Christ, because it is the central theme of the Gospels and of the Bible. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's what predicates coming to the the baptismal font. That one is baptized because they recognize and accept and receive the salvation that comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the forgiveness of sins that comes through the spotless Lamb of God. The eternal Son of God came to serve as the sacrifice to pay the price for your sins and for mine and for all the sinners that we see every day, early and often. And you and I are conduits for that salvation. Again, this is counterintuitive to what we would expect or desire. This is a hard truth, but it is the truth that we need to hear and receive to find salvation. We don't get the right to argue with Jesus. Notice what happened the one time someone did argue. Peter says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, um, you need to keep that one quiet. This, doesn't, this isn't on brand, Jesus. This doesn't fit with what the world wants to hear, Jesus. This doesn't fit with how, what, what, this isn't going to make our operation grow, Jesus. And we are going to draw people with this kind of message. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Hey, Satan, get back in line. The word Satan meaning adversary. This jumped out at me this week, and I haven't seen this before. But if you look, Peter, just a few verses, I have seen this, but not the clear imagery. Do you realize that Peter is still the rock? Before, we look a few verses earlier, and Peter says, hey, you are the son of God. This is what we believe about you, Jesus. He he declares the right truth. It's only you that have the words of life. And Jesus says, you, that's that's right, Peter, the the spirit of God has revealed this to you. and, And you are Peter, the rock, and on This rock I will build my church. And just a little bit later, Peter says, hey, Jesus, remember that declaration? This is still true, but we need to get back on brand. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Peter is still a rock, but he's the wrong kind of rock. And I think that we need to be careful about that. When we undermine the truth of Christ as the sacrificial Savior, or we try to trivialize or minimize that, we try to tamp down the reality of the sins of the world needing forgiven, we try to tap down the blood and the gore of Jesus being crucified on the cross, and we try to limit that, and we try to celebrate the glory of Christmas while while marginalizing the the sadness of, of, of Easter, we miss something, and we lose the power and authority of the gospel. This is why Christ came. This is why God became man and dwelt among us. Not that he could force us into his mold, but that he might die on a cross and shed his blood to open up a path for us to enter into relationship with him and the Father, to share his glorious good news and to receive his salvation. The religious leaders found this offensive. They tried to discredit it. The idea that the Messiah would save through sacrifice rather than force didn't fit their expectations. And brothers and sisters, this is why they killed Jesus. We will see that next week. And even today, I fear that we accept Christ's sacrifice as being appropriate for then. But we want a stronger, more forceful Savior for now. But salvation has always come through the shedding of blood. Salvation has always come through the death of a spotless lamb. Salvation has always come through the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ. That theme is present through the whole of scripture. 
It is the worst kept secret in the Bible, and perhaps this is the reason. Because the sacrifice of Jesus was never meant to be a secret. It is the story. And it's not just a story that we are to receive. It's a story that we are to share. It's a story that we are to enter into ourselves, to live it out in our interactions with one another in the world. Let's go back to Matthew 20 right quickly. Verses 24 through 28, it says, When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the other two who were trying to elevate themselves. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, this is our calling. We are to serve and to give our lives in sacrificial service. And we may not ransom anyone from their sins, but we point them to the one who did through our modeling the truth of Jesus in our lives. The sacrificial death of Jesus is in fact the worst kept secret in the gospel. Because it's the story. And this good news is not our private property to be protected from those who might do harm. Jesus himself treated it like it was a precious gift that was to be given out to all who would receive it. At every earliest convenience. And Easter is a season in which we highlight and emphasize the truth of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for us. And that is good. But we see evidence of the truth of the sacrificial gift of the precious Lamb of God from the moment of Christ's birth to the inception of his ministry throughout his life and in his own words and in his very death. Our task then, like Simeon, like John the Baptist and Jesus himself, is to proclaim the same truth in word and deed. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace. I thank you for the salvation that you have made available to us through your sacrifice. I thank you that through your broken body and your shed blood, we are made whole. And God, may we not be stingy with that truth, but may we be liberal with how we share it with a world in need. May it be on the tips of our tongues and in the works of our hands in the living of our lives. May your broken body and your shed blood be seen in our lives. May the man of sorrows who brings about salvation and ultimate joy be seen in our sacrificial service to the world as we emulate and imitate the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we have the privilege of not only celebrating baptism, but the ordinance of communion. We at First Baptist Church believe in what we call open communion. What that means is this, that you need not be a member of First Baptist Church or any church to take communion with us. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and that you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, we invite you to join with us in communion. You are our brothers. You are our sisters. You are members of our family of faith, and we welcome you to the table. If you haven't received a communion cup, I'd like you to raise your hand right quick, and one of our deacons will bring one to you. We've got one that we need back here in the middle, Larry. Um, And so we will get that to you. But we know the story of what happened with Christ. And I want you to take a minute, and I want you to close your eyes. I want you to bow your heads. And I want you to think about what Christ has done for you. I want you to take a moment to thank God for sending Jesus to serve as a sacrifice for your sins. Thank thank God, the, the creator God of the universe, for coming in bodily form that he might be broken to make you whole. I want you to take a moment to thank Jesus for what he's done for us. For his broken body and shed blood for your forgiveness, for your redemption, 
for your restoration. And I want you to ask the good Lord that he would, as we take communion with one another this morning, that we would understand and recognize the togetherness, the unity that comes through it. That we would recognize that we are taking upon ourselves not just the salvation, but the call to share of the gospel. That we are to remember and remembrance is to inspire repetition. God, I pray that you would bless these elements of bread and juice that we are about to take. That you would make them for us the body and blood of Christ. And that you would help us to live in the truth of the sacrifice of the Savior. In Jesus' name. We'll take the bread. The scriptures tell us that on the night Christ was betrayed, he took bread. He broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said to him, this bread is my body which is broken for you. Take it now in remembrance of me. I give you the body of Christ, broken for you. Scriptures tell us that in the same way, Christ took the cup. And Christ gave the cup to his disciples and said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of of sins. Take it as often as you do it. Remembrance of me. This is the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Father God, we thank you for these, your gifts. We thank you for these means of your grace that remind us of who you are and what you've done and remind us of our great need for you and your great love. Lord, I pray that as we receive your sacrificial grace anew this morning, as we are reminded of it, that we wouldn't be content to rest in it, but that we would also seek to live in it, to share it as best we can with the world in need. May we be inspired by your life and by your death. May we be filled by your spirit through your resurrection that we might model your grace to the world in need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.